0: Our scripture reading for this morning is found on page 553 in your, in the Bible in the pew if you're using that or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can pull that Bible from the pew and find the reading on page 553, chapter 1 of the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it'll be a helpful backdrop to our text in Isaiah this morning. If you wouldn't mind, please join me in standing in honor of God's holy word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so if you're visiting or new, um, we have been walking through the book of Isaiah, uh, section by section, and so this morning we're in Isaiah 31 and 32, it's a lot of ground to cover, we'll try to make sure that we don't lose the force for the trees in these two chapters, um, but the landscape, even though there's a lot there, is fairly simple and fairly clear, so hopefully that'll become clear by the end here. But as we get started, I want to ask a couple questions, get your juices flowing and and get you thinking. What is your relationship with what is real? might sound like a weird question. Um, Let me ask it this way. What's the most real thing in your life? So as I thought about this whole idea of reality and real, um, what struck me is how conflicted we are on this. Couple of quick definitions, just this will help. Working definitions, just Wikipedia or whatever, I don't know. Um, Actually existing as a thing or occurring in fact, not imagined or supposed. Okay. Two, not imitation or artificial or pretend or fake or counterfeit, but genuine. Okay, it's pretty simple, pretty clear definitions, right? So we want real friends, we want real relationships, we want real peace. We want real love, we want real satisfaction, real hope. Where do we go to find those? How often do we go to virtual land in order to find what we're looking for? So think about your life, think about your patterns. How many of you love movies? Nothing wrong with good movies. But oftentimes we run To that place, and we prefer that place. This is my happy place. (laughs) And it's an escape. It's this little vicarious participation in someone else's made up, usually. Yeah, I know there's, you know, based on a true story things, whatever. Okay, but generally speaking, made up story because we might be so dissatisfied with our own. We love TV. I couldn't believe this. I I don't watch TV, um, but I couldn't even believe how many reality TV shows there are. There's actually a website out there, and it said, you know, pick. And it was like scrolling, scrolling. Like, really? There's that many of those now? So um, what's reality television? For those of you that don't know, reality television is a genre of television program that documents ostensibly, that's a big word that means supposedly, Ha ha! Unscripted, real-life situations, and often features an otherwise unknown cast. Although the reality of these shows is often disputed. <laughs> so, ready for some reality show titles? This is reality. America, American Ninja Warrior. Anybody feeling it? Is this real life for any of you? How about there's a new one that's coming out? Fear, Buried Alive. Any? Set your clocks, you know. October 26th, there, uh, three people will be buried alive live in coffins. And they're pretending that there's some kind of purpose. This is somebody else's words, not mine. Um, some kind of purpose here beyond watching pure terror unfold via infra- infrared cameras. The network says the subjects will be closely monitored under scientific conditions as they endure a series of escalating horrors designed to test the strength of their psyches. And altogether, it's about enduring and defeating true, true terror. Okay, Dancing with the Stars, there's all kinds of, you know, like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Trading Spouses, apparently, that's great. I'm so thankful for these wonderful reality shows. Um, You know, Bear Grylls and like the Survivor ones, and then they find, you know, there was the whole um, thing about he's staying in hotels sometimes at night and whatever. Um, And I, I like Bear Grylls, but anyway... What were those definitions of real again? Actually existing, not imagined or supposed. not imitation or artificial or pretend or fake or counterfeit, but genuine, genuine. So again, think about your life. Think about your patterns. We love electronics. We stare at our screens at other people's best foot-forward lives. and we get jealous and envious of what's not real. We have lots of Facebook friends, and we're lonely. We have incredible communications tech, and our communication is more superficial than ever. What is pornography built on? Reality? No. What is advertising built on so often? Reality? No. Photoshop is expected. It's a given. How about video games? Some people spend inordinate amounts of time building up virtual money or achievements or whatever. Again, there's nothing wrong with a movie, television, video games, but what I'm saying is we can so often get more excited about what's not real than what's real. So we we love a whole lot of simulated reality. Simulated reality. And then there's all this hubbub about augmented reality and virtual reality. Virtual reality? Really? Wait a minute. I mean, I know I went to public school, but virtual reality? Isn't that an oxymoron? Or all the hype about AI, artificial intelligence? Okay, there's, there's some helpful things that come along with that technology. But, man, some of the some of the promises, some of the hopes that are being pinned on that are unbelievable and it's artificial. So I raise all that to say this. We think we're so committed to reality and that we want to keep it real and that we can smell out hypocrisy and, and inauthenticity just a mile away and we hate the hypocrites and, you know, we, but we're so conflicted about what we really want. We are so duped by imitations and the artificial, the pretend, the fake, the counterfeit. All of us can be. So with that in mind, ask yourself, how often have I felt like God is really distant, more like an idea than a real person who's really involved in my life in real and tangible ways? How often have you felt like his promises and his grace are, are kind of weightless and thin? And the promises of some of these other things and people in this world are so much more real and substantial. Well, at least with a real person, you can talk to them and see and feel. Oh, a real person? What's the most real thing in your life? So the passage in front of us is all about reminding us and showing us who is real, what's really real. So let's look at it together. Um, There's an outline in your bulletin, or you'll have, I think the slides will be up here, um, four points. But the the lion's share, we're actually going to spend on this first point. So just to give you a heads up here, as far as orientation is concerned. So chapter 31, verses 1 to 9 is all about turning to and trusting in the real God. Look at verse 1, 31.1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now, for those of you that are visiting or are new to us, this might sound like gobbledygook, okay? So this really happened in real time in history. And the situation was God is speaking to his people in the Old Testament through Isaiah. Okay, Isaiah lived from, or his ministry was basically from about 740 BC to 680 BC, okay? And at that time, for most of that time, Assyria was the big superpower. And it was here and Israel's here and Egypt is down here and they're kind of in between and Assyria is threatening to just crush them. So they figure, you know what, if we get on the good side of Egypt, maybe we can make this alliance and they'll help us and protect us from the big bad bullies. So here's Israel, they're they're supposed to rely on the Lord. He's going to fight their battles for them. And instead, they're trusting in Egypt, which was really ironic because Egypt was the slave driver that they used to be under and oppressed by. Why would you run back to them? So, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. So, we don't run to Egypt for help, but where do you go when the threats come? Where's your refuge? Where's your help? Where's your strength? Um, This was how they were tempted to neglect, to, to... not run to the Lord, but run to some other so-called help. Where is that for you? Okay, this is not so far away. It's, it's very relevant to our lives as well. So woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, like the best military technology of the time. Horses were strength. Chariots were like the tanks of the time. There's many chariots and horsemen, skilled riders. They're strong. The problem was they're not looking to the Holy One of Israel. They're not consulting the Lord. And yet, he is wise and brings disaster. And so if you know the book of Isaiah, this is a shot at the leaders who thought they were so wise to devise a plan to save themselves from this Assyrian threat. So they were going to rely on Egypt by their help, and that's going to save them, right? And they were saying to Isaiah, would you just shut up? We're tired of your sermons. It's just foolish talk. We're too smart for it. We're too sophisticated for it. Well, that's the sad thing. They were the fools. When we rely on other things and we don't look to the Lord, that's foolish. God is wise and he will, in this case, he promised there would be judgment. There would be disaster. That would be the consequence of their actions. So they thought by their wisdom they would avert disaster And yet God is really the wise one and as a result of their unbelief and idolatry, they're gonna have to face disaster. He does not call back his words but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. So the Lord doesn't have to like, oh, whoops. He doesn't have to you know, go with plan B. He doesn't have to call back his words He's totally in control. That is reality. Our scrambling, our scheming, our taking matters into our own hands only brings woe. That's what this section is saying. We need to hear that again and again. We also need the following reality check. Look at verse 3. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper, Egypt, right? You've got to come help us. The helper will stumble, and he who has helped Judah will fall, and they will all perish together. So which one's more powerful? It's kind of obvious. Egyptians are just men. It doesn't matter how strong they are in their military might. Compared to God, they're weak, helpless. All he has to do is stretch out his hand, and they're they're done. So this is not an ethereal, unreal, non-factor God we're dealing with here. This is a real God who gave them real promises, and you know what? It's just not practical. Like, we've got serious threats here. All it is is words. We need to really do something. And we do the same thing. How often do the words, the promises, the truth of God just seem really thin to us? And other solutions seem so substantial. Like, you need comfort. We can run to food as a real comfort rather than the food for our souls, for instance. I mean, I I know this Egypt thing and these political military things are a long way off from where we live but we can run to other stuff precisely because we think God and his word and his promises just are so thin in our experience at that moment. This this alcohol seems like such a better helper. These pills seem like so so much stronger of a help against my anxiety or my depression than the promises of God. Those are just words. I need help now. Now. How about purity? Let's say you are just really struggling and burning with temptation. Well, there's passages like Psalm eighty four eleven. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But sometimes that image and that temptation seems so strong and real, and God's word seems so weak and thin. Or, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's so real and weighty and wonderful, but sometimes under threat, under the, in the heat of temptation. It just, it just seems like a mirage, and the real offer is elsewhere in virtual reality, as far as pleasure and sex and satisfaction is concerned. Look at verse four. For thus the Lord said to me, he, he wants to tell them what he's like. He wants to tell them about his character so that they realize who they're dealing with, the real God. As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey and when a band of shepherds is called out against them is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Okay, this could be pretty confusing. The, the big picture point is really clear. God is like a lion, <laughs> and any earthly help is like a shepherd that only has pots and pans to bang around. Go away. Ding, 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 ding. Like, what's that going to do against the lion? He's just going to yawn. Now, I know we have 30 sixes and stuff like that today, but, you know, go with the metaphor here in the time in which it was written. So the whole point is, Judah deserves judgment. Assyria is going to come down on them. You can do all you want to link up with the the shepherds, Egyptians. You can call them out against your enemy. But when the Lord comes down in his judgment using the Assyrians like a tool, the shepherds aren't going to be able to do anything. Because it's like trying to scare a lion away with pots and pans. So this is not a tame lion we're dealing with. You can't domesticate and control him and just use him for your own devices. So that's what's real. You're dealing with a real God who's like a lion. And, and this help that you're going after is just worthless. That's the big picture point. But then there's this amazing turn, and it goes to a positive image in verse 5. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. <laughs> so he's going to judge, but he's going to do so in such a way where ultimately it's for their protection and security in the long run. So he's got to judge, he's going to wake up his people, but he's, he's doing it in order to show mercy on the far side of judgment. He is like a lion that cannot be toyed with, but he's also like this protective bird hovering over her own. Okay, So on the heels of that, the primary call of this section is found in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. So a couple things to notice here. There's a lot here, but look at the progression between verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, there's this positive picture, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. So turn. So God is actually promising grace before repentance. He doesn't say, you better get back here and maybe... If you catch me on a good day, I'll be merciful to you. Like after I cool off. If you're lucky. He promises the mercy and says, Come and get it. Like his character is revealed all over these pages. He's like a lion. He's real in his strength. He's like this bird. He's real in his protective, loving impulses. And he's so merciful and gracious to draw us back to win and woo and allure us back to him away out of the shadows, out of the vanity of vanities that's all around us. So this 31.6 is like the climactic call for response. It's kind of like Luke 15. You can imagine if the father would have said something to that lost son in the faraway country, he would have said, just come home. Egypt's help is worthless. The the Lord will fight for you. You don't. They're not going to do you any good. Just come home. So repentance is return. This turning language is the same word for repentance. It's a complete turnaround. It's 180 degrees. So really interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's the first time I've ever seen this um, stop signal or or whatever. If you're traveling, let's see, it would be eastbound on Naaman's Road at Shipley, did you ever notice there's an arrow that goes like this? Did you ever see that? So I almost went and took a picture of it, stick it up on the screen, um, but I didn't. But anyway, I've never seen that before. The, the point is the only thing you can do is turn around. at that, if, Like if you're sitting at that light, which I was sitting there with Hannah, I think, um last weekend or something the only thing we could do is turn around that's great like that that's what god does so graciously so kindly to us sometimes is sometimes he kind of forces our hand and we can get frustrated and then he's we realize he's just he's bringing us to a spot where we can only turn around because <laughs> that's exactly what we need is to leave the vanities behind, the help that can't help us behind because he wants us to come back to him. So what can you do if this is the situation? You can only turn around. I mean, we are in the business of making our own gods. God is in the business, the real God is in the business of bringing us back to the real God so that we just cast away all the false counterfeit imitation gods that can't help us. So, do you see what happens here this is the call, turn. <laughs> it's not this big long laundry list of all these to-dos you've got to do to get into his good graces. He wants you to turn and come back to him. That's how you come in to the kingdom and that's how we keep returning to him. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble who repent and turn back to him and just cast our idols away when we see them so when we repent mean, you could think of it this way um, it's easy to sometimes grasp for things when you're <clears throat> under pressure or in temptation you you look for things to grab onto to help you to give you comfort strength whatever it is and then we come to our senses and we realize what am i doing these things can't ultimately help help us vanity of vanities this is a striving after the wind and repentance is like dropping all the idols so we can run and cling to a real God. So if our hands are still full, we're not really coming to rely on him. So do you see how verse 7 makes sense that it follows on verse 6? For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. So This is is really good news. Just stop and think about the way God set things up. How did God set things up? Think about the Ten Commandments. Okay, track with me here. They start out with, you shall have no other gods before me, and then you shall make no carved images. So the real God is transcendently great. Any idol representation would be to diminish or to, to distort his character because he's transcendently, you know, he's just, there's no one like him. So no idols, no representations of him. Nobody can compete with him. There should be no other gods besides him, but also don't make any idols of him because it would be to reduce him down. But do you see how that, like setting it up that way, also opens the door to temptation of idolatry? With other gods, and in the ancient Near East, it was idols and so forth for us money, power, sex, approval of people, etc. With these other gods, at least I can see and touch and smell, at least I have some control. Every lack in the realm of something that you value is actually set up to be an opportunity to experience the real blessings, the real blessings of a real God, his real grace, his real sufficiency. But it also opens us up to look for it in all the wrong places. I just said those things in an abstract conceptual way, but I think you'll get where I'm going with a few examples. Let me just say it this way. Let's say your marriage is bad. You can look to God and know, in that moment, the sweetness of his marital love and faithfulness. Or you can run to something else, like a romance novel or porn or an emotional affair at work or whatever. Do you see how that the invisible God, no gods beside me, no images, you have to trust me, you've got to rely on me. Is wonderful because we're dealing with a real God, but it's also hard because it's a fight of faith. We've got to trust Him. And so, those moments of temptation and threat and trial and trouble both open up the opportunity to really know the reality of the unseen God, but also it's a temptation to latch on to something more tangible. You get that? You tracking? Yes, no. A couple more examples here. How about loneliness? Even if you don't have an experience this one exactly, I think this might shed light on what I'm trying to say here. I remember Beth and I counseling um, a girl who went into one bad relationship after another, and even abusive ones. And and we, loving on this girl, trying to tell her about Jesus, to trust in the gospel and believe you know what's true this real God and she just finally scrapped it all and said you know what I I can't touch him I can't hold him so she would go into these abusive like terrible relationships and get used and abused one after the other because she needed a real person so that longing for love and intimacy and companionship is a lack, right? It's an opportunity to know how strong the real God in his love and friendship and companionship is, but it's also this threat that you might latch on to something that's a substitute, an imitation, a counterfeit, a fake, pretend. And woe comes when we actually do that. So, let's say you're in financial trouble. You can look to God and know the power of his promise to provide what you need. Don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat or drink. Your father knows what you need. Seek first the kingdom, and he'll take care of these things. Or you could say, you, you don't understand the situation I'm in. And you can run to dishonesty, cheating, gambling, stealing, Whatever. To save yourself. How about just money? The world's financial systems are a card house. And they, they can fall in a moment. They will all fall and fail one day. It's a bunch of zeros and ones, smoke and mirrors, paper and politics. So when God says... The love of money is the root of all evil. Don't desire to be rich. Is that because God's like anti, you know, enjoying things? No, it's because that's, it's it's like building your life on sand. It's so shaky of a foundation. It will actually steal your experience of true riches. He wants you to know real true riches, the riches of his mercy. See what I'm saying? Sometimes in real time, there are days when, The riches of his mercy just sounds like this thin cliche. I got bills to pay. Well, of course he knows that. But is he trustworthy? Or do you have to take matters into your own hands? Do you see what I'm saying? Turn. This is a real God you're dealing with. His promises are not idle and empty. Don't run to Egypt. So sometimes the the best gift that can happen to us is disillusionment. (laughs) The best thing that can happen sometimes is Ecclesiastes, where, where God just goes to those bubbles of what we think is so great that's other than God, whether we got it and then we realize it's not so great, or we just keep wanting it, striving it, if only, if only. So let's say you're really discontent. And maybe you're jealous of some things that others have that you don't. Well, you can run to buying things to try to find contentment. And for some people, if you don't have the means to do it, you can really live in a dream world and buy those things on credit rather than waiting on and relying on the Lord. So listen, do you see how rubber meets the road this is? Philippians 4.17 says, even though it's in a lot of Christian college weight rooms, is all about contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I know how to abound, and I know how to be in need. I've learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul was content. He was satisfied. He's happy, whether he has a lot, whether he has a little, because he had Jesus. And if he's got Jesus, he's got everything. So is Philippians four seventeen pie in the sky? And the real contentment comes from, oh, if I just had, if, j-. no. Don't run back to Egypt. Don't rely on those other things. Satan is a master of disguise. He loves to make it seem like his mirages are real. And God's promises are vapid and ethereal and wispy. So, which is more real? We constantly need reminded of what is really real. And Isaiah is doing that for us in this passage. He does it again in verses 8 and 9. And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man, not the Egyptians. Your little plan's not going to do it. They're going to fall by a sword. Not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock, probably a reference to their king, shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. We're going to read in a couple of weeks here about the story of when Hezekiah, this is basically telling that story in a different way, Assyria comes and knocks on the door, and they've got this huge horde, and Hezekiah's like, ah, what are we going to do? And he just, where's he going to go? He doesn't know where to go except on his knees. And the Lord just smokes the Assyrians like that, and he didn't need to use any swords to do it. He just turned their swords. So anyway, how does the Lord say he will fight for his people. They won't even have to use a sword. They just need to trust him. This is like this, this this falls into a long line of examples of God's power and faithfulness to deliver. Which which sword in in these two verses is real? Which one's more powerful? The invisible one or the visible ones? The invisible ones. So think of God's track record, the way that he works. Think of Exodus and the Red Sea. What did Israel do? to pull that one off? Um, nothing. <laughs> they just had to stay. I mean, they didn't even have to stay behind the cloud. God said, you know what? I'm going to just get in between you and the pursuing army of Pharaoh. And then I'm going to separate. I'm going to you know, make a path through the Red Sea. And you need to walk through I'll fight for you. The battle is mine. So Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Think of Jericho. <laughs> what'd they do to pull that one off? Uh, they walked again. And they blew some trumpets. Gideon. What'd they do there? Like, where, where's the real firepower coming from in these battles? Yeah, you got too many men. I want this to be really obvious that I'm the one winning this battle. Okay, 300 of you, you get up on the hill, blow some trumpets, you know, smash some, some pottery, and hold your torches up. <laughs> I'll take care of the rest. Is this a real God? David and Goliath? David said to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I mean, you just look at that, you, you look at that contest and you go, oh, he's toast. <laughs> I mean, and that's, that's what we do with our lives. Oh, man, I'm, and we freak out and we're anxious and fearful. Well, what if we actually saw it as God versus Goliath rather than a little boy with a stick <laughs> and Goliath. God's real. Amen? Anybody? <laughs> so you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of, of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth and all that all the earth may know... That there is a God in Israel, a real one. Not your false god Dagon that ends up on his face earlier in the biblical story. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Or Zechariah 4.6. This is the word of the Lord, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So if this is true, if this is real, then we're led right back to verse 6. To return, to keep running to our true refuge, our true strength. I need encouragement along those lines. You need encouragement to keep running to the real God? to your real strength, to be reminded of how strong he is, how real he is, to even see how easily we're duped into thinking that not real things are real. And, you know, we're all in this together. So that's why in home groups, as you discuss this, we need to encourage each other, sharing how, you know what, I was an idiot when I did this, and here's what I was thinking, and, I you know, I... Sometimes we just get blinded and blah, 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 pray for me. And, you know, there was this time when the Lord just made himself so real. And this, and we can encourage each other to live in reality and trust the real God. So the sword of the Lord here in these verses is aimed at popping the bubbles of our fantasies and our fears. And like I said, disenchantment is one of the best things that can happen to us. So, you know what? Um, failure of politicians whether it's through corruption or folly or false promises or whatever can actually be a wonderful gift for us to not put our hope in government human government (laughs) but to say oh it's so good that unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the increase of his government will never end Like, he's going to rule from sea to to sea one day. And it actually, rather than making you freak out because of what's going on, instead it makes the kingship of Jesus that much sweeter. Or the effects of the housing bubble and economic distress, and maybe, you know, if we went through another major recession or whatever, that can be a gift. Pop the bubble. My hope is in the one who owns a cattle in a thousand hills. He's going to take care of me. Might have to shift and shape how I define need, but he knows what I need. I can trust him. He's real. Even disease and bodily breakdown can pop certain bubbles where we put our hopes, we pin our hopes in different places other than in the Lord. And you know what? I'm so glad that there's a hope of the resurrection. And nobody and no thing can take that away. And one day, all things will be made new, including this stupid body that keeps breaking down. So actually, the breakdown and the disease can be a servant popping the bubble and causing you to rely on the only God who's real, that gives real promises and real hope. So idols are weak and empty and worthless, and it is folly to run after false gods and helps and not look to the Holy One of Israel. And so if we're honest, (laughs) we see those impulses alive in our hearts. So who can make it right? I've already alluded to this, but I want you to just see the big picture landscape, and we're going to hit this briefly. But here's the the big picture of what's happening in these two chapters, (laughs) You're under threat. You have a temptation to run to some other help. It's worthless. It can't help you. The Lord, he's God. He's real. He can really help you. And so when he helps, when his people turn, they cast away their idols and they trust in him alone. So, so how did he do this? How is he doing this? How does he turn people from idolatry to true worship and fidelity how does that happen well behold a king here's how it happens through his anointed king and it happens by his spirit and the king and the spirit torch all the complacency in our lives that's the big picture okay so let's just go through chapter 32 kind of helicopter level and we'll see how this works out Behold, a king will will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will, will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. This ruler, this king, and it's Jesus, His righteous rule remakes his people. So earlier on in Isaiah, because of their idolatry, they are blind spiritually. They're deaf spiritually. They're dull spiritually. They keep sticking their fingers in their ears. And you know what? This king comes, and he starts to rule in righteousness, and the eyes of those who see will not be closed. Their ears are going to be open, and they're going to give attention and then the, the leaders in this king's kingdom are going to reflect the nature of their king. So the church and its leaders should be a hiding place and a shelter from the storm. The problem then, if you are familiar with earlier on in Isaiah, that the leaders in Israel, they were fleecing the people. They were using them for their own selfish advantage. No, no, no. The, the kingdom of God should be a place of safety. People should feel safe in the church. I love you know I love Ray Ortland, um, pastor in, in Nashville. He has this great saying because he's after after cultivating a, a, a gospel culture in the church, not just true doctrine, but embodied doctrine, incarnated doctrine, and he says the gospel plus safety plus time. That's a gospel culture in the church. That's what we need to produce. <laughs> Our our God is so real and so strong and so merciful and so patient and so kind. We deserve to just be judged and condemned, but He's welcomed us in. He's taken care of everything. All of our deepest problems are dealt with. We've got Him. So come on into the hospital. Come on into the shelter. Come on in for healing. We're like a hiding place from the wind, like a shelter from the storm. Are you thirsty? Stop trying to drink from the broken cisterns of this world that are just vanity of vanities. Drink some of this living water that Jesus gives. The streams of water in a dry place, like shade. Are you burned out and weary? Come on in, the shade of a great rock in a weary land. The church should be a place where thirsty souls are watered and weary, burned out people find shade. And the church is the place where the true God with his truth shapes our values. Look at verse 5. The fool will no more more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Is this going on in our world today? Where things are upside down and backwards? Yeah. I mean, we don't have to look far for how unrighteousness is lionized and righteousness is demonized. If you push left, you're honored. If you push right, and, and I'm not talking about just Republican, Democrat, because sometimes this stuff is so polarized and, and you know, ugh, I, don't, I can't even go there right now. But what I'm saying is true righteousness. Like, for instance, what is the deal that if you are pro-life and you're for traditional marriage, it spells political death in so many circles? That's because the fool will no more... Well, it's because they're still called noble and scoundrels are called honorable. But in the king's kingdom, and the church's preview of coming attractions, the church's preview of what is to come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess to this great king, in his kingdom, those upside-down, distorted values are transformed. He remakes his people from the inside out, and where there was once folly, nobility begins to grow and flourish. And it's not some self-righteous nobility. We're looking down our... No, no remember? Hide. We're, we're a shelter. Come on. But look at verse 8. He who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. So this king could just force everybody to their knees. This is the God who waves his hand and wipes out the Assyrians. But instead, he started, how did he do this? How does this happen? Turn people around and they cast away their idols and they cling to the true living God. How does he do this? How does he start this setting the world to rights project? He could have just come and slammed down the iron, you know, uh, scepter and said, everybody bow. He could have just wiped out all the idolaters. Well, there wouldn't be anybody left. Instead, this king came and he bore our unrighteousness and went under the woe of God that we deserve. Isaiah 53 he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the greatest king of all time. He is great and he is good. He is He is exalted and he is meek and humble. He is strong and he is sensitive. He is just and he's loving. And if there is anything to get excited about, it's him and his kingdom. But you know what? At that time, they were complacent. This is no time for complacency. Okay? Isaiah's not just picking on the women here. He's not a misogynist or anything like that. He's He's picked on a lot of different people. But he is focusing on them here. Look at the main point is really clear. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder. You complacent women. Like, you're just interested in what's at the supermarket and the next deal at at the department store, et cetera, et cetera. You guys are just You're not reading the signs here as far as what's coming. Don't be complacent. This is not a time for complacency. So if we know the real God and the nature of his real kingdom and his grace that's so wonderful and real and all these mirage bubbles get burst, there's no place for complacency. Oh, I'm too busy to read the Bible. No, this isn't box checking, and to be impressive, this is like, I need to live in reality, and I walk through the world, I get up, and I go to to work, and I look at advertising and watch TV, and it's bombarding me with lies and mirages. I need God's word. This is no time for complacency. I need to live in the midst of what's real. So if if any of us are bored with the real God and we find ourselves excited or energized by the shadows and husks, we need to just throw down those idols and turn and run to the real king. And you know what's really great is, yes, the true king is making all things new and he's starting with our hearts, but he also gives the spirit so that These things that are great and true out there, the cross, the love of God, the promises, they can be real in here, and we know them as real. Look at where verses 15 to 20 go. The Spirit rains down on the people and produces the garden of God until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness, is that kind of like our life? This is the world we live in. It's like a wilderness, but the Spirit rains down the truth of God, how real he is, his grace in Christ, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. The fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Then righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. We get taste of this here and now, and then one day when Jesus comes back and he sets everything to rights, It's going to be righteousness and peace, quietness and trust forever from sea to shining sea. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. So again, new people by the power of the king as he pours out his spirit, starting at Pentecost and going on until the day that Jesus returns. And why is he doing this? Why does he shake us up? Why does he do all of this? He does it because he wants real security and real foundation and real hope and peace and life and everything for us. So the last two verses are are the conclusion of these chapters. It will hail when the forest of Assyria falls down. The city, Jerusalem, will be utterly laid low. That's the reality for those who refuse to rely on the real God, judgment. But verse 20, happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. (laughs) It's a really weird thing for us. We're not like living in the midst of an agrarian society with a bunch of animals running around. Um, But the point is, it's gonna be so much flourishing that you know what? The animals can roam wherever they want and eat whatever they want because it's not gonna... Steal our our dinner. Like they can just roam free. They can eat all they want because we've got bumper crop like forever. It's this peaceful pastoral setting that's just beautiful. Happy are you when you trust in the real God. So if you're under serious threat, the thing that you need most and I need most is for God to be real to you. More real than your feelings, more real than your fears, more real than your what-ifs, more real than all other things or people that you might be tempted to sinfully run to for help. If you're not under serious threat right now, this is no time for complacency. There is no better time to seek the Lord and trust in him than now. No better time to ask the Lord to give you Ecclesiastes-like disenchantment with the false gods of this world and to make his glory and his grace more real to you than it's ever been. Okay, so this last song that we're going to sing is like a prayer that that would happen. That we would rest in God alone, find our rest in Him alone, because He alone is the real God. It's built on Psalm 62. So let's pray, and then we're going to sing this song as a prayer. Lord, I pray that we would see you high and lifted up for who you are and run to you, relying on you as our savior, as our refuge, as our help. I pray that in you alone would we set our hope, would we wait in silence You only are our rock and our salvation and our fortress, and when that's true, we shall not be shaken. So help us to trust in you at all times. In Jesus' name, amen.